Thank you, Mark, for starting to open that passage up for us. It's easy uh, with a passage like 1 Corinthians 13 to tear through it and think, what great poetry, and move, and let's, you know, let's move on. Um, I'm just warming up. Have we got, yeah, there we go, great, thanks. So, uh, how do you preach on a, on a passage which is possibly the most beloved passage in Scripture? Um, not an easy thing to, to think about. Uh, a daunting privilege is what I, is what I would summarise it at, as. Who's heard this passage at a wedding or had it at their own wedding? A lot of us, right? A lot of us. And um, it's easy to, to just associate... <coughs> This uh, passage of on love, this actually quite difficult passage on love, it's easy to associate it with romance. Uh, and really, there's a lot more to it as we've started to hear and as we will try to get into in the next few minutes. And really, this is the central theme of Paul's letter to Corinthians. And this is his big idea. This is actually the big idea of our gospel, of the news of Jesus Christ. It is about a love, but a difficult love, not a romantic kind of love. See, 1 Corinthians is essentially a rising tide of question after question after question that they're throwing at Paul. A litany of complaints, accusations, practical problems. What about them, Lord? What about him, Paul? What about us? What do we do? And Paul says, just for a minute, we're going to switch tack. Just for a minute, I'm going to put the brakes on. Just for a minute... I want you to hear something back. You haven't asked me this question. You've asked loads of questions, but I'm going to tell you something. Great question, says Paul, but I need to tell you a more excellent way. See, up to chapter 12, and from chapter 14, the church at Corinth is almost disappearing under the weight of their own problems, one after another after another. And actually, chapter 13, if you read it in context, and by the way, if you are uh, going to a small group or a house group, we will we, we'll be looking at this passage next week. And if you aren't in a small group or a passage, join one. This is, this, is, this is a great passage to start thinking about, to start attending a small group over. You, you'll learn a lot, you'll share a lot. But if you read, as the groups have been doing through Corinthians, um, up to chapter 12 and from chapter 14, there's a similarity to the chapters They're all about one practical issue after another. But chapter 13 is quite abruptly different. It's quite suddenly different. Paul decides to just cut through this series of questions that he's being faced. Questions about factions and disagreements. I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow someone else. And Paul says, we'll deal with that, but here is something greater. Sexual conduct, sexual immorality outside the church and inside the church. And Paul says, yes, we need to deal with that. But here is something greater. Headship, wearing of head coverings. He's not wearing a head covering. She is wearing a head covering. What's the right way to do this, Paul? What, what should we do? And Paul says, yes, we will deal with that. That's an important question. But here is something greater. Or food offered to idols. What do we do, Paul? Is it okay to eat meat that's been offered to an idol? What if I don't feel good about eating the meat and here's someone who's eating the meat? Or what if he doesn't want to eat the meat and I'm eating the meat? What do we do, Paul? What would Jesus have done, Paul? Tell us what to do. And Paul says, yes, we will deal with that. But here is something greater. Or 
the uh, manifestation of spectacular gifts. One has the gift of prophecy, one has the gift of tongues, one has the, has the gift of healing. What do we do with these gifts? What if there's no interpretation of tongues? What do we do, Paul? And Paul says, yes, we will deal with that, but here is something greater. Listen up. Put, put everything else on pause, says Paul, and listen to this, because you need to hear this. Here is a way. Here is something greater. Here is a more excellent way. Here is a context for all of those discussions and debates and arguments you're having. Here is an ultimate aim for all of those issues that you face at Corinth and all of those issues that we face today at our church. Here is something greater, a more excellent way. See, um, to Paul, these questions were important. It's not that the questions were somehow not important. They are important questions. A lot of them are important to us today. But Paul has this, uh, gives us this idea that really, if that's all you're thinking about, you're kind of rummaging around in the weeds here. You're kind of seeing one tree after another and missing the entire wood. There's, an, there's a more important lesson that you need to get your heads around. So too, our issues at Lynn Baptist Church, can quickly fill our agendas, quickly fill our skyline, can't they? We can have great discussions on theology, on what we think about different doctrines. We can have uh, great discussions about quiet times. What's the better way to pray or read the Bible? Good discussions. We can have great discussions about our buildings and architectures. Great house group discussions about all kinds of things. After coffee, after church. These are all good things. But we can completely miss the point if we're not careful. So when Paul says... Put everything else on hold just for a minute. Let's do that and think about what Paul says. So, uh, <clears throat> we have to take care as well, just as those in Corinth. I think our risk is that we think, what a beautiful passage 1 Corinthians 13 is. What a beautiful wedding that was. What great poetry. But if that's it, if we think 1 Corinthians 13 is great poetry, we've missed the point. It's not great poetry as much as it is instructions for holy living, instructions for discipleship. And we aspire to be disciples, don't we? So, let's dive in. I'm going to read, we're just going to talk about the first half uh, of 1 Corinthians 13 today. The second half, hopefully we'll come back to in September. We're going to do a kind of a retake on some of the Corinthian passages in the autumn. So let me just give you this once more. We've had it a couple of times. So Paul says, all these questions you're throwing at me, yes, yes, okay, but just hold on, because, and yet, I will show you a more excellent way. If I speak in the languages of men or of angels, but have not love, I am but a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I may have the gift of prophecy, I may be able to fathom all mysteries, I may have the faith to move mountains, but if I have not love, I am nothing. I may give all I have to the poor. I may hand over my body for hardship so that I may boast. But if I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never 
fails. And we will just look at three of these aspects of love, because there's a lot in there, and then stand back and look at the whole idea of love, as Paul puts it in this passage. Waiting patiently is love. Not boasting is love. Not keeping a record of wrongs is love. Let's look at those one at a time. Waiting patiently is love. For many of us, this is not a good start. I'm I'm one of them, you know. If if, uh, people who know me well, if my family were to describe me, and I I, I would hesitate to ask them, but patience is probably not a word they would come up with straight away. And maybe I'm not the only one here, I suspect. It's not an easy thing. I, I would much have preferred it if Paul had said, studying the Bible really hard, this is what it's about. Or, you know, learning more theology, being more faithful, even praying harder, because I can have a go at that. But this is hard. This is harder than all of those things for many of us. Our culture that we live in doesn't encourage us to be patient, does it? Very much a consumer-driven, industry-driven culture. Why, Why wait for your new pair of jeans or your new top? You don't need to wait. Get it now. Order it on Amazon. comes tomorrow. If you need to see that film or that series or that episode, why wait? Why wait next week for the next episode? Stream it now on Netflix. And at work, we're used to just-in-time delivery. Everything must be delivered just in time, on time. And many of us are driven in our daily lives by Google calendars, Outlook events, and the rest of it. Not that there's anything wrong with any of these things, but they can push us into an attitude, into a way of living that is impatient. That is impatient. Even we don't realise it. But because everything must be delivered now, everything must be on time when we say it needs to be there. We don't need to wait. We shouldn't wait. We become accustomed to an attitude of impatience. Let me ask you a question. How would your family describe you? How would your Wife, husband, how would your parents describe you? How would your kids describe you? Would they say, patience? I don't know. Hopefully they might. I don't know. A patient person doesn't need to be heard first. They will wait. They're okay. I find that hard. A patient person doesn't have a short fuse, isn't always sounding off about something. A patient person isn't touchy. We don't need to tread on eggshells when we're walking around them. A patient person waits for the right moment when there is something critical to say. They don't just blurt it out. Maybe it's when you're alone with that person. Maybe it's when you're not feeling so angry. There's a right time to give criticism and a right way to do it. And a patient person picks that time. Is there an antidote? We'll do an antidote on each one of these. How can we get better at this? Uh, Somebody once said to me some years ago, particularly with teenage kids, not, not, not just, but with teenage children. It's easy to find them doing things wrong, isn't it? Everything they seem to do is not what we said and not what we expected and not what we hoped for. And it's easy to say, what, this, why, why did you do that? Why haven't you cleaned that up? Why haven't you done this? You're not living in a hotel, etc., 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 yeah? Some of those may ring true. And someone said, well, why don't you um, catch them doing something right and tell them about that? Catch them doing something right and tell them about that. Uh, there's a book that's out there, the One Minute series, and there's one called The One Minute Manager. 
And uh, they say in that book, one of the things they say is, as a manager, if you manage people, try to spend a minute each day telling people who you manage what they've done right. So that was really good. Good job. I like what you did there. It engenders within us an attitude of patience. We need to pray for patience and expect tough situations. I've prayed for patience and then been in situations that were incredibly difficult to manage, which made me very impatient. And I said to God, why have you put me in this again? And God says to me, well, you wanted to learn patience. How how are you going to learn it unless I put you in these situations where you become impatient? Oh, right, okay. Love does not blunder in. Love does not blurt out. Waiting patiently is love. Let's go on to the next one. So that was a tough one. Not boasting, says Paul, is love. This sounds easier, or is it? Let's have a look at this one. In Corinth, you see, people were parading their gifts, <laughs> insisting that they knew the right way, that they had the right idea about the Lord's Supper, that they had the right answer to food offered to idols, that they, their gift of prophecy was better than your gift of tongues, was better than his gift of healing. So there's a lot of boasting. Paul's reply to them and us was, love neither envies nor brags. So we don't do that, do we? We don't boast, do we? Have we ever, for example, paraded our children's gifts and achievements thoughtlessly, perhaps before somebody else who's really struggling with a young person who at the moment is off the rails? Or before people who can't have children? <coughs> Excuse me. Have we ever... Oh, what's the reason that we really need that 2017 number plate or the latest iPhone? Is it partly because it's nice to be seen with that. Or do we even sometimes brag about our church, or boast about our church here at Lim? I remember once someone telling me they attend a, a big church in Manchester, and they said that they had some visitors, and the visitors had told them, or somebody had told them, said, the worship here is world-class. said, the worship here is world-class. They were telling me that. And I thought, okay, that, that sounds good. You know, and then I think... I know a church in Withenshaw where 15 minutes from here where there's one 79-year-old lady who for nearly 60 years has played the organ there on her own. Is that second class then? I think when God sees her, he sees perseverance. He sees faithfulness. He sees love. Now, don't get this wrong. There's nothing wrong in being pleased when our kids do well. There's nothing wrong in being proud of that. Uh, There's nothing wrong in being proud of the worship band that we have here. But think about how we say that, how we express that to people, and more importantly, who do we say it to? Because we can say these things out senselessly, sorry, insensitively, without thinking. There's nothing necessarily wrong in having the new car. But it's our motivation for getting that that we need to think about. Often Paul's answer comes down to, in Corinthians, think about the other person. With this thing about head coverings, think about what it says to the other other person. The whole issue of do you eat food or not eat food offered to idols, think about what that's saying to the other person. And a lot of his answers in Corinthians are, think about that other person. And I think that's very true uh, with the not boasting 
And just to say, <clears throat> don't, the opposite of that is just as bad. You know, we shouldn't be into false modesty. Oh, I could never do that, so I won't volunteer. I couldn't do that as well as so-and-so, so I won't volunteer. If God has put something on our heart that we have time or ability to do something, he probably wants you to, to, to do that. Not boasting is love. And then lastly, <clears throat> keeping no record of wrongs is love. This is another hard one. But actually, uh, you know what? If you look at all of these rather than if we just tear through it as poetry, sounds great. But if we stop and think about each of these things that Paul says, love is, they're all hard. They're all really hard. Keeping no record of wrongs is love. And if we stop uh, competition in Corinth, again, a lot of uh, discussion, debate, argument going on. A lot of resent. Resentful, really, is that word that we use for keeping a record of wrongs. When we bring back the time that somebody offended us, we store it up in our heads. And we, don't, we, we kind of have got past it, forgiven them, but we're ready to mention it, to bring it up again. It makes us feel good, but it's not love. Are there people who annoy you? Apart from the associate minister of Lynn Baptist Church. He's <laughs> annoying a few people these days. But do you, are there people who annoy you and you, you've re, you resent it and you store it up somehow? You, don't, you remember it. What about the person at work who bragged about their projects and didn't really talk to you about it and then it all fell through and they fell on their face? Was, were you right, sort of, well good for you, with relish. I told you so, with relish. Is that our attitude back? Or what about, I don't know, someone in this church? Has someone in this church offended you in the past by something they've said or not said or done or not done and you prefer just to avoid them? Or closer to home, that downward spiral of recrimination that I think all of us have experienced. You never do that. Well, you never do that. Well, what about the time you did that? And it's all coming back again, isn't it? All the things of the past that we're bringing back. Is there an antidote? Is there a more excellent way? We will disagree. And the Bible's clear about that. You know, um, I, I did some studying on conflict in churches some time ago. I interviewed a few people, including the director of Bridge Builder Ministries UK, they mediate, they do mediation for churches that are, that are falling apart, that are splitting. And Colin Moles, the director, I remember he said, one of the things he said was, um, if God had meant us all to agree, he would never have created men and women. Right? <laughs> so it's okay to disagree. It's okay to disagree. We will fall out. That's fine. But holding on to it and bringing, bringing it back when, at the strategic point when we want to make our, when we want to hurt someone, that's not okay. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians, doesn't he, when you, when you, when you're angry, when you fall into anger, not if, but when you fall into anger, don't let your anger lead you into sin, and don't stay angry into the next day. Deal with it that day. So, it's okay. These things are okay. It's what, it's, it's the holding on to it that's not okay. If, if there's someone in your life, your work, perhaps among your relatives, who does really annoy you, they keep doing that thing, honestly, the thing to do is to start praying for them. To stop uh, worrying about all the other things that we think are to do with discipleship 
And they are, but quiet times, Bible knowledge, you're, and just pray for that person because that's a blocking factor. Otherwise, says Paul, all your prayers, all your Bible study, all your worship, you might as well go home and bang that gong and clang that bell because that's what it's worth. If we're not doing these things, this is Paul saying, you might as well be uh, bring on the banging gongs and the clanging bells because that's all it's worth. And actually, I've found, perhaps you've found, if you pray for somebody you really don't like, you really don't get on with, God does this annoying thing where you end up actually liking them. I would have much preferred it. I liked them when I didn't like them because it felt better. But I started praying for them and God actually, in the end, made me change my heart. Not only the things I did, but the way I felt about them. Goes against the grain, but so does this love that Paul speaks of. Not keeping a record of wrongs is love. So we could carry on and talk about one, one of these attributes after another after another and open them all up. They're all great, but let's just pause and step back. As I say, I said at the start, I wish I could have brought you a sermon about the need to pray more and to read your Bible more and to sing louder in worship and to turn upon a Sunday. They're all important things. But Paul says, unless you understand and you know love, you're just a noisy gong or a clanging bell, or as the the message puts it, a, a rusty creaking gate. Every one of these verbs is a call to discipleship. Uh, Try sometime reading it to yourself. Try putting your own name in from verse 4 to 7 instead of love. That's really hard. Chris is patient. Chris is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. That's hard. I find that really hard. But I'm encouraged that God is changing me and he is changing you. By Year by year, we become more like Christ because Christ is all of those things. But let's just step back and look and ask a general question, which is, of all the attributes, and we've looked at three of them in 1 Corinthians 13, what's, what's the common thread between them? What's the big idea? Anybody like to have a guess? What's the common idea about love that Paul is bringing out in all these things? He's saying, love is this, love is this, love is this. What's the common line? Go on. Unity, yeah, great, yeah. It is about unity. But what else? What is he actually saying? Well, perhaps what is he saying it's not? Say again. Changing attitudes. Yes, yes, okay, changing attitudes. But it's also about the fact that this love is about doing. This love does stuff. It's an action. You know, it's a verb. You know, he says not boasting is love. Waiting patiently is love. So it's not so much, or even in Paul's uh, 1 Corinthians 13, it's actually nothing to do with feeling. Now the Bible talks about different kinds of love, and some loves are to do with feeling. This love, this agape love, in 1 Corinthians 13, is a doing love, it's an action love, it's what you do that counts. Even when you don't feel like it, that's when it really is love, when you don't feel like you love that person, but you do the right thing anyway. So let's just look at this for a minute then. This love does stuff when it doesn't feel in love, when it doesn't feel like it. It's a selfless, lasting concern. It's not given because we expect something back. It's given anyway. And um, this love is about small acts. It's about not responding in kind, not giving the insult back, not, not bringing up that thing which you can bring up, 
you could bring up, you could say, well, what about when you... But you choose not to. It's the small acts. Um, it's the things... God often achieves his ways through the small things, through what the world considers foolish. The world would consider it foolish. Why didn't you give back as, as good as you got? Why didn't you bring up that thing that they did when they talked about what you did? But the Bible says, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that God achieves his ways through what the world considers foolish. He says, I will um, destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will frustrate the intelligence of the intelligent. God, cha- God chooses to use the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He chooses to use the weak things of this world to shame the strong. So it's the small acts that we can do. This is what Paul's talking about, the individual acts. The world works a different way. If the world wants to achieve something, it does it top-down in a, power, in a power-like way. Power seeks to control from above, but love seeks to do its work from below, the small acts. It's like the daisy that comes through the concrete, and you think, how did that get there? We expected blackness, we expected negativity, we expected darkness, but somehow there's something bright there. It's the small acts, the tiny acts. Uh, Power seeks to dominate from above. Love seeks to woo, to do something creative, to do a new thing, to fascinate, to surprise. You could have given that reply back. You could have insulted them just as they insulted you, but you chose not to. It's a kind of vulnerability. It's not being a doormat. The Bible never says that we should put up with abuse, for example, but it's choosing. I could reply the way that you just spoke to me. I could do that. I am well able to do that, but I choose not to. That's love. And one last thing about this love and this idea of love actually being a doing, this love that does stuff. Sometimes, um, some people talk about the winter of love, sometimes, in our relationships, sometimes, we, we don't feel in love. We don't feel like we love that person. In all our relationships, then maybe there, there comes a winter time, maybe a day, a week, a month, it may last long, maybe many months, when we don't feel like we love this person. Not just in a marriage, but certainly within marriage. Love, in that situation, love is what remains when feeling in love has fallen away. Love is what remains, it's the action that remains when feeling in love, for some reason, isn't there today. On that day, let's say, take the marriage example, on that day, you don't feel like you love your wife or husband, you don't feel that as much as you would like to, you have a choice. You can chase the feeling and find somebody else who will give you that feeling for a bit and find somebody else after that who will give you that feeling for a bit, Or you can choose to do love. You can choose to do love. You can choose to do love anyway, to make the positive remark you don't feel like making, to do the kind deed you don't really feel like doing. That's love. Let's just look at that for a minute. Love is what remains when feeling in love has fallen away. Love is what remains when just getting on has fallen away sometimes. Our son, our daughter, our brother, our sister, our parents, they've annoyed us, they've disappointed us, they've let us down. They haven't done the thing which we've talked about it so many times. We've asked them not to do it and they do it again. 
upset, as disappointed as, but love is what we choose to do. We choose. They can deeply upset us, disappoint us, let us, get, let us down. It's not about letting them off, but it's about choosing to say something positive rather than what we feel, rather than speaking out of the hurt, out of the anger. Love is what remains when feeling in love has fallen away. Love is what remains when being friends sometimes has fallen away. That person that we worked with for years, and we thought we trusted them. We'd been out for meals, we'd been out for drinks, we've got on, we've worked with them, but then something happens and they stab us in the back. They let us take the blame for something. Maybe we lose our job. And they said, well, I'm sorry, but push comes to shove. I had to look after number one. But we choose to call them a friend anyway. We choose to do that. Love is what remains when feeling in love has fallen away. You know, when Jesus walked to the cross, as he actually walked along that road to the cross, do you think he felt in love? Felt in love with you or I? I don't think he felt in love with you or I. A few hours before, he was crying in Gethsemane, Father God, take me out of this situation. If there's any other way, if there's any other way to do this, take me out of this situation. He didn't feel in love with you or I, but he chose to do love anyway. Not a feeling, not an emotion, but love that does stuff. God remained when feeling in love had fallen away. Love remained when feeling in love had fallen away. Let's just pray for a minute. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you, Lord, that you are love. The Bible tells us that. After all the deep theological discussions and all the incredible passage of Scripture about you, right at the end of the Bible, John says, God is love. All of those things we've talked about, all of those actions, that you are those. Help us, Lord. Help us today for someone in our life who we're finding it hard to love. Somebody in our family, in our workplace, in our, among our relatives, on our street, that we really find it hard to love. Help us, Lord, to put on gentleness, as Paul says, to put those things on and to do those actions even when we don't feel like it. And thank you, Lord, that whatever we've done, you love us anyway. Thank you, Lord, that we can never, um, di- we can never disillusion you because you have no illusions about us, that you love us anyway. Help us, Lord, this week, Lord, to do these actions of love, whether we feel like them or not, to do the things, Lord, that you would do. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.